0: I want to turn your attention this morning back to the Word of God. We kind of pick up where we left our bookmark uh, last Sunday in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon that Jesus preached, I'm just repeating his words, plagiarizing them, uh, and then giving some thoughts as to how these things apply most specifically and directly Hobson Road Community Church. We've heard over the last several weeks Jesus describe what life looks like when we live as citizens of God's kingdom. And over the last two or three weeks in particular, we've heard him address, first of all, our actions. We might call it good deeds. Kingdom people do good deeds. That's not what religion is all about. It's not what relationship with Christ is. Is all about, but neither can we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Kingdom people do, in fact, do good deeds. Jesus addressed not only the deeds themselves, but the motivation behind them that we ought to have in the kingdom. And then over the last Last week, we heard him describe issues of spiritual discipline, things that we do that might not have a direct impact on other people around us, but they speak to our faith and our relationship with God, and they are the disciplines by which we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, a week ago, last Sunday, the topic at hand was prayer. This week, we're going to hear him move on to another issue of spiritual Spiritual discipline with some very, very similar thoughts. So again, I'm going to plagiarize Jesus this morning. Just imagine you find yourself on that mountainside on that morning and you hear the master say these words. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Just a short little passage we wanna focus on today. When you fast, Jesus says, and he goes on to describe how fasting works in the kingdom of God. I wonder if like me this week, you've, You've watched with interest this developing story about the dinosaur tracks in Texas. Have you seen that on the news? Have you read any articles about that? In the Paluxy River in Texas this week, uh, the drought that, that we're experiencing in the south part of this nation has caused the riverbed to dry up. And in so doing, it's exposed about 140 dinosaur tracks from two different, two individual dinosaurs of two different species. Scientists tell us that the tracks were likely left in the mud about 113 million years ago. Now, I've seen other examples of dinosaur tracks. When I was a little boy, I was fascinated with dinosaurs. And I can remember looking at books and seeing dinosaur tracks. And to be honest with you, most of the time, what you see, I I can remember thinking, how do they know that's a dinosaur track? It just looks like a crack in the ground. It just looks like... Is that even a track? Is that anything? But if you've seen the pictures of the dinosaur tracks I'm talking about this week, there's no question that these are dinosaur tracks. It looks like somebody went out there with with huge footprints and is trying to play a prank on us. It's clearly dinosaur tracks. Now, ordinarily, these tracks would be covered by silt. and and sediment from the river and then they'd be covered with all the feet of river water and nobody would ever know that they are there but now they are plainly visible to the naked eye, the river water has dried up, the silt and the sediment has blown away and they're clear, they're apparent to the naked eye. And this actually isn't just happening in Texas. There's drought going on throughout our world this summer and around the world, we have examples of things being exposed that we didn't know were there. On the Danube River, we've discovered an entire flotilla of Nazi warships that still have live ordnance in them. And so other ships navigating the river can't go there anymore because we realize, wow, it's basically mines there, and if we hit them, we'll be in trouble. In Italy, they found a a bridge over a river that was sunken into the river dating from before the time of Christ, something that the Roman Empire had built. In China, on the Yangtze River, in areas of drought, they've discovered this summer a series of Buddhist statues that historians believe are as much as 600 years old. We had no idea they were there. And here they are now. The river's dried up, and we've seen them. I bring all of these things up because I think it's a great word picture of what fasting accomplishes in our lives. Fasting, as you might know, is a very common religious practice. It's not in any way unique to Christianity. Jesus certainly didn't invent fasting. In my experience, most people seem to have a basic understanding of what it is. But I think that there are a lot of people that don't understand why we do it. I've heard folks suggest, for instance, that fasting, skipping meals for a period of time is a way of earning favor with God or or impressing him by making yourself suffer for a while. It's an idea of physical suffering as a sort of penance in order to get right with God. It's the cost of God's blessing and favor in our lives, some people say. I hope you'll understand if I tell you I think that's ridiculous. There's a theological term for that kind of idea. We call it kooky talk. It's kooky talk, it doesn't make sense. How many parents, if you don't believe me, how many parents in the room are pleased when our children choose to suffer for no good reason? How do we feel when our kids choose to suffer for no good reason? As parents, we don't like it. Why would we imagine that our Heavenly Father likes it when his children choose to suffer for no good reason? It's kooky talk, that's not how fasting works. I think the dinosaur tracks in Texas offer us a better way of thinking about fasting. In the course of ordinary life, there are things that have a way of obscuring and and covering up deep spiritual truths, just like the water and the silt and the sediment has covered up those tracks. They hide what's beneath them as, as the streams of everyday life just kind of flow by and seem to be unimpeded. But fasting removes all of that. Fasting dries it up. Fasting has a way of, of temporarily peeling back the layers of daily life and exposing what has always been there. When we fast, we have an opportunity to discover or maybe just to rediscover what lies beneath. We're reminded that our footprints are not the only footprints of consequence in our spiritual lives. We see things with clarity that had otherwise been shrouded in the busyness of daily life. And then of course, eventually, we return our lives to normal. Fasts don't typically last forever. At some point, the rains will come. About a week ago, Keila, am I right? The rains really came in Texas, right? The river will come back. At some point, the silt and the sediment and the water will take their usual familiar place. And once again, we won't see the dinosaur tracks, but now we know. And if we're wise, we make a point of remembering the spiritual truths that might not be obvious to us on a daily basis, but nevertheless lie beneath the surface with the power to shape our lives for better or for worse. All of that is just a very, very complicated way of saying fasting reveals what we otherwise might not even notice. But Jesus teaches us that in God's kingdom, there's a very particular way to fast. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, he says, "'When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, "'for they disfigure their faces "'to show others they are fasting.'" Do you like, he's throwing a little bit of shade. He says, when you fast, you know, put some oil, that'd be their version of, of head and shoulders, right? put some oil on the head and actually wash your face. You know, when you go to worship, when you go to, to meet with people. If you ever come to church and I greet you at the door and say, oh, are you fasting? <laughs> That's an insult, people, okay? <laughs> you say, you're not supposed to look like you're in bad shape when you're fasting. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus address good deeds. And Jesus said, the hypocrites of our day, make sure everybody knows about it when they're doing a good deed. But Jesus said, in the kingdom, we still do good deeds. We just don't need to alert the media about it when we do it, right? That's what he said. Last week, we heard Jesus address prayer and he went through essentially the very same formula. He said, the hypocrites in his day made sure everybody knew when they were praying. Jesus says, but wait, in the kingdom, we still pray. We don't stop praying. I'm not telling you not to pray. I'm just saying when we pray, we don't need to alert the media about it when we're doing it. And so this week we hear him talk about fasting and he follows exactly the same formula, not surprising. He says, the hypocrites in our world, they fast, they fast. They make sure everybody knows that they're fasting when they do it. Now, we're going to fast in the kingdom, Jesus says. We're not going to get rid of the idea of fasting. Like We didn't get rid of the idea of doing good deeds. We didn't get rid of the idea of praying. We're not going to get rid of the idea of fasting. We're going to do it. We're just not going to alert the media about it when we do it. I've heard many preachers uh, rightfully highlight the fact that Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, Jesus says, when you fast. There's a presumption that his followers are going to fast. Christians are people who fast. It's not an optional practice for, for the elite or the spiritually holy So for a moment, I want you to just set aside the presumption that fasting can only involve giving up food. Uh, Let's just boil this down to its most basic parts. Jesus is operating under this assumption that life in the kingdom involves giving some other things up. Isn't that what he's saying? Life in the kingdom necessitates giving some other things up, either temporarily, as in the case of a typical fast, But in some cases, I think we would all say permanently as well. Life in the kingdom involves giving other things up. Here's the point. We don't enter the kingdom of God without sacrifice. Now, the ancient Jews would have known that, obviously. They would have known that for sure. They would have recognized that fact immediately because of the rhythms of their religious practice. You don't enter the kingdom without sacrifice. But I wonder if we've forgotten that truth in our day. Jesus' issue isn't whether or not we sacrifice. Jesus' presumption is that we will sacrifice, but his issue is that those sacrifice must come about with integrity. He wants us to understand this. Kingdom life includes honest sacrifice. Kingdom life includes honest sacrifice. You can't have one without the other, right? Kingdom life is going to include the rhythm of honest sacrifice. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of an episode of The Simpsons that I saw many, many years ago. Anybody else have the problem of reading the Bible and being reminded of The Simpsons? Just me, okay, okay. There was a particular episode that I had seen many, many years ago uh, in which Marge Simpson, the matriarch of the family with the four foot high beehive hairdo, can you picture her? Marge Simpson had begun losing clumps out of her hair. She was not just losing a single hair, she was losing entire clumps out of her hair. And she goes to the doctor to figure out why she's experiencing hair loss. And the doctor says, there's nothing at all physically wrong with you. I think the problem is that you're too stressed. And so she goes home and tells the family, she says, the doctor says I'm stressed and we need to work to lower my stress level so that I can regain my health. And so the family rallies around her and they decide the best thing that we can do to help mom out, reduce her stress, we need to hire a maid. We're gonna hire a maid so that mom doesn't have to do so much work around the house uh, and, and, and she won't be quite so stressed. The problem is that the Simpson family is your classic middle-class family. They don't have it in their budget to hire a maid. So now they have to figure out how are we gonna come up with enough money to hire a maid so that mom's not so stressed. And so they decided they're gonna come up with creative ways of just tightening the budget a little bit and trying to come up with enough extra money so that they can finally hire a maid so that mom won't be quite so stressed. So Lisa, the little girl, she says, Well, I'm just gonna stop buying the doll clothes and doll toys that I always buy. And Bart, Bart Simpson, the little boy in the family says, I know what I'll do, I'm gonna take up smoking and then I'm gonna quit that and all that money I save on cigarettes, mom can have. (laughs) And Homer, the dad in the family, just lauds Bart. What a great sacrifice that is. Good job, boy, here, have a dollar, he says. And Lisa looks at her dad and says, dad, He didn't actually do anything. I wish I could remember scripture the way I remember the Simpsons. (laughs) It's just that line though, he didn't actually do anything. It looks like he's making a big sacrifice here, but he didn't actually do anything. Is sacrifice really an honest sacrifice if we didn't actually do anything? Now remember, God doesn't want you to make yourself miserable just so you can impress him. But by the same token, we have to understand, we have to remember that entrance into the kingdom comes by way of sacrifice. Now, of course, of course, of course, I I hope you've already thought of this. Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice. The cross of Christ is the all sufficient sacrifice for, for entrance into the kingdom. It's just that I wonder how easy it is or how difficult it is for us to come up with the things that that we have really very honestly sacrificed, figuratively speaking, the things that we have put to death in order to live as citizens of the kingdom. We live in a culture that does not do sacrifice very well, right? We aren't, we aren't like that. You know what we are? We're consumers. We, we've come to expect that we should leave a situation with more than what we put into it, not the other way around. That's the American way, right? And in my observation, the American church on the whole isn't very different than the world around us in that regard. Most churchgoers are are very quick to describe what they quote, got out of the sermon or or what they got out of the worship time. But in many cases, the very same folks are unwilling to give up the comforts of their lifestyle or, or even just their recreational sports time in order to grow deeper in their relationship with Christ. We aren't very good at sacrifice. It reminds me of the story the Bible tells about King David, who relatively late in his life made a decision to purchase some property. He had found some farmland that he thought would be good, a good place to erect an altar and make a place of prayer. Actually, spoiler alert, a generation later, this very piece of property would become the site for Solomon's temple. But it was David who purchased the farmland that would one day become that temple. He found it and he, he decided he wanted to purchase the land. And so he, he notified the landowner, the farmer who worked there and he said, I wanna buy your land and I wanna build an altar and I wanna to sacrifice to God on it. And the farmer who uh, you know, gets this news and, and David, as I said, this is late in his reign. I mean, this is, this is King David, you know what I'm saying? This isn't shepherd boy, David. This is king, David. And the farmer says to the king, he says, my lord, my king, if you want my farm, you can have my farm. Like it would be my honor. It would be my privilege to give this to you. And don't pretend like you need to buy stuff to build an altar. I've got everything you need right here. It's all yours. You build this altar. You make sacrifices to your God. You can have it. You can, I would be honored to give it to you, he says. And David turns to him and he says, you can read this in Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. David replies to him this way. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. That's a man of integrity. The King says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. I believe that's a challenge to the modern church. God is inviting us to re our thoughts on sacrifice. And I think the goal, just as King David ultimately purchased the grain and, and then burned it on the altar as a way of saying, here God, this is yours. I give it up because it belongs to you. Our goal should be to endeavor to have hearts that say the same kinds of things to God. Here God, here's my time. I surrender it, I sacrifice it to you. It's, It's not mine anymore, it's yours. Here God, here's my abilities. I give them up to you, they are yours. Lord, here are my treasures. I give them up to you, they are yours. God, here's my love life. I yield it to you. I give it up to you. It is yours. God, here are the dreams that I have for my life. Here are my plans, God. I put them on the altar and sacrifice them in service to you. They aren't mine anymore. They're yours. That's what sacrifice looks like. But just as we've seen with the other issues that Jesus has pointed out, when it comes to fasting, the conversation doesn't end with whether or not we do it, whether or not we make the sacrifices it takes to do things like that. Jesus wants to expose the condition of our hearts as we do it. And that's why he ends the little passage we heard this morning by saying this, don't let it be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. The hypocrites of Jesus's day weren't hypocrites because they were fasting, right? Fasting is good. That's not what made them hypocrites. And they weren't hypocrites because fasting made them weak and hungry. I fast on a fairly regular basis. I've had people ask me, Pastor, when you fast, how do you feel? And I have no shame whatsoever about telling you, I feel weak and hungry. That's how I feel when I fast. If you plan a fast, if you're not experienced with fasting, Uh, But you think, you know what? Maybe I need to do that. Maybe I'm going to fast a single meal. Maybe I'm going to fast 24 hours. I'm going to start with something like that. What's that going to be like? Please don't think me less than spiritual if I tell you the truth. You're going to be hungry and you're going to be weak. It's, not likely to be fun. If your expectation is that you skip breakfast and suddenly a shaft of light falls down upon you from heaven and you experience total clarity and everything by 10.30 a.m. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. One of my, um, (coughs) I think I've told you this story before. Several years ago, I was on staff at another church and uh, I had taken a day off to do some Prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting. And I decided I'm just gonna take the whole day and seek God and I I went out, I went into downtown Naperville and decided to walk the river walk and just spend some time alone and praying. And uh, at at 10.15 a.m., the devil, who that particular morning was in Burger King, Began to waft down the river with the smells of the Chris sandwich. <laughs> and at 10:30 in the morning, I was in line for Chris sandwich. <laughs> now, here's the kicker. In those days, it was my habit not to eat breakfast anyhow. So I usually wasn't eating until noon. But on the day I planned to fast by 10:30, I was like, I'm sorry, Jesus, I gotta go get me a Chris sandwich." You know, like there's weakness, and it's okay. It's okay to stumble. I don't want to set you up and say, ah, you know, whatever. It it matters, but it's okay. There's grace, right? There's grace in the croissant. So, (laughs) when you fast, fast away from Burger King. (laughs) Away, do we get it? Away from Burger King, because you're going to be hungry. Pastor, how am I going to feel when I fast? You're going to be hungry. Anybody have a sandwich right now? <laughs> I don't even know where I was here. You're right in the Oh, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess we were talking about the hypocrites. <laughs> They weren't hypocrites because fasting made them weak and hungry. Fasting makes good people feel weak and hungry. They were hypocrites because their focus was on trying to appear weak and hungry. Their focus was on trying to make sure other people around them thought maybe they were even weaker and hungrier than they actually were. Spoiler alert, if you're gonna try a fast, it's those first 12 to 18 hours that are worse. Day two, not a problem. That's not in my notes, just a little, little, little extra there because I feel like I just killed any initiative whatsoever. Like Dan says we can't do it, gotta just go to Burger King. There you go, no, 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 it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Oh my goodness, this is going off the rails here, isn't it? If you're undertaking a spiritual discipline to impress somebody else, right? Maybe your spouse, maybe your parents, classmates, your coworkers, maybe your pastor, if you're undertaking a spiritual discipline to impress somebody else, you're not gonna reap the benefits of that discipline. Um, Sue and I were talking about this last night. I, I really don't think people that are, you know, let's say age 40 and younger really fully understand this. So those of us who are above the age of 40 in the room, you know, help me out here if you can. I I grew up in an era when teenagers for the most part did not drink coffee. Like coffee is so ubiquitous now. Tyler is in junior high and he goes out for coffee with his buddies. And I'm like, Tyler, can I tell Like, like you're actually on tea these days. Like Tyler's all about green tea and stuff like that. But he and his buddies are like, where are we going? We're going to Starbucks. And I'm like, that was not a thing when I was in junior high. That was not a thing when I was in high school. I grew up in an era where teenagers did not drink coffee. There were not coffee houses on every corner. And nobody, nobody, in this part of the country, anyhow, knew what a venti, mocha mochaccino, frappe, latte, half-calf, almond, soy, dusted with nutmeg, whatever was. Right, like nobody knew what that was. I, I'm, I'm looking here at Jonathan and Hannah who came from the Pacific Northwest. You guys probably knew what it was in preschool, right? <laughs> Right? Like, you're like, well, that was just like, you know, it was in our bottles. They gave it to us when we were infants, right? But in, in my day, and, and certainly here in the Midwest, like, we didn't, it, it, just, it just wasn't a thing. And even in college, when I was in college, very few of my friends drank coffee on a regular basis. I lived in the dorms. We would eat breakfast, you know, in the, in the cafeteria. There was not a coffee bar there. There might have been one pot of coffee at the end, and nobody drank. It just wasn't not a thing, but after college, when I got like one of my very first, quote, real jobs, you know where I actually had to show up to work in the morning, I noticed that a lot of my coworkers would show up with a travel mug with coffee in it. That's the first time I can remember seeing colleagues of mine drinking coffee, more, more so than not, right? That's the first time the majority of my cohort drink coffee, and I thought, well, if that's what you do when you go to work, then I'm gonna drink coffee, and so I got some coffee, and I started making coffee in the morning before I would go to work, and I would put it in a little travel mug, and just like my coworkers, I would show up to work, and oh, I got my coffee, and I'm gonna drink, drink <laughs> coffee. And I did that for a few months, and, and then you know what I discovered? Coffee tastes really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Like nobody should drink that stuff. It's, 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 it's bad. And I don't, I don't like coffee. It doesn't taste, you know, good. (laughs) You know what I like to drink in the morning? Juice. And so I started putting juice in my mug, God bless it. And I would go to work with juice in my mug and I'd drink my juice because I don't like coffee. Eventually, I went back to just drinking juice in the morning and that three to four months was the only period of my life where I drank coffee to this day. I think it's bad. I don't know why you all drink it. It's just, it's just bad. It's bad. Here's the thing. I know that a lot of you, you know, like your opinion of me has just sunk quite a bit because you feel strongly about the Lord's beverage. Um, and, and that's okay, but here's the thing. My breakfast drinks should be of no concern to the people around me. Unless there's booze in it. Maybe then we need an intervention, right? But my <laughs> breakfast drinks, if we're talking about coffee and, and juice, you know, it's of no concern to the people ar- around me. My morning beverage choice is, is gonna remain between me and the fridge. Right? I'm not gonna drink coffee because that's what everybody else is drinking. I'm not gonna show up with a mug to impress them or to fit in or to do what everyone else seems to be doing for reasons that I don't fully understand. The things that we do to nourish ourselves need not become a matter of pride or an attempt to fit in with a particular crowd. Do you understand where I'm going with this? The things that we do to nourish ourselves, we do out of obedience to God. And his perspective is the only one that matters. And the discipline of sacrifice falls into this category. So that's why I want to put it this way today. Kingdom life includes honest sacrifice that should remain between you and God. Honest sacrifice that should remain between you and God. When we live our kingdom lives well, there are things that we do in service to the kingdom. Sacrifices we make, things we do without, things that no one will ever know about. And if we take Christ's words on fasting very, very literally, as I, I think we should, this means that there will be times, like when we fast, that the temporary discomfort of our private spiritual pursuits will have to remain private. The temporary discomfort of our, our private spiritual pursuits will remain private. But if we allow that principle to influence and inform other parts of our lives, it means that other kinds of sacrifices are also going to go unseen. No one will ever know what kind of car you could have afforded if you hadn't decided to support that missionary last year. No one will ever know how many hours you really did spend preparing for your part in the Vacation Bible School this year. No one will ever know about that night that you stayed up late, 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 late into the night, praying for your pastor, praying for your church, or praying for that person that the Lord put on your heart. No one will ever know what it was that you stopped doing and put aside so that you could pick up the phone when a brother or a sister in need called out to you. No one will ever know the promotion that you could have had at work or the part you could have gotten in the school play or the spot you could have had on the travel soccer team if you had told your boss or your teacher or your coach, yeah, I'm available on Sunday. No one will ever know what you could have done with your vacation time if you hadn't decided to go on that mission trip. No one will ever know. But that's okay. Because the blessing isn't found in the response of other people. The blessing is found in the faithfulness of God. And in the kingdom, it's wise. Oh, it's wise to chase after the blessings of the Father. So Jesus's advice is this, keep it between yourself and God, and, and I'm gonna plagiarize just one more time here, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you know more than any of us know about what the people of your kingdom have set aside, have metaphorically put to death in order that they might serve you well, in order that they might be fashioned into the likeness of Jesus, and in order that the other people in the kingdom would be strengthened and built up and edified. God, even the little glimpses that I get as a pastor, sometimes I referred to that a couple of weeks ago, sometimes I do get just a little peek behind the curtain. But God, I I don't know who is praying for me at 2 a.m. I don't know what it costs someone to give in this church. I don't know all of the details that went into the various decisions that were made. I don't know. And we certainly don't know that about each other. But we are reminded today that we serve a father who sees what is done in secret. Every little thing, God, you know. The unrighteous hear that and they shudder. Well, God knows. God who's watching. How scary that was. But Lord, we, your people, the people of your kingdom, as the word of God says, the sheep of your pasture, boy, we, we make no claim to being perfect. But Lord, we rejoice in the knowledge that the Father who is unseen Sees what is done in secret. God, you know. You know. You know. And we thank you today in the the full full knowledge and complete understanding that it was the sacrifice of Jesus, not my sacrifice, not the the little stuff that I put aside. It was the sacrifice of Jesus that made available to each one of us citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It was the sacrifice of Jesus. We're not gonna try and put ourselves in his spot. We're not gonna try and do that. It was Jesus' sacrifice. But God, we recognize that the way of the kingdom is, is, is a way of sacrifice. And so now living into that kingdom, it falls on us in various ways in various times to do without to go without, to decide that less is better than more. To say, God, I don't have control of this. This is yours. And I place it on your altar. So Lord, whether we fast from a meal or whether we, give up something else of value or importance to us in our lives. Whether we do so temporarily in order to see what we might discover as the river waters recede and the silt moves away and we discover what was there beneath the surface and then eventually go back just knowing what was there, whether it's just a temporary thing or whether, Lord, there are things that you are calling us specifically to get out of now and forevermore. Lord, my prayer for my brothers and sisters today is that we wouldn't be afraid to just lay it down. We wouldn't be afraid to say, we're gonna say no. We wouldn't be afraid to do without. But Lord, that your Holy Spirit would whisper to us in those moments, there's a blessing in that. Go get it. There's a blessing in that. Go get it. We chase after the blessings of God. We sang this morning, Lord, for all my life you have been faithful. You've been so, so good. May that be our testimony. May that be the refrain that is in our minds that when we worry, when we are tempted or invited to worry about what would happen if I didn't have A, B, or C. The answer to that is very simple. There has never been a day, there has never been a moment, God, when you have not been faithful. There has never been a circumstance in which you were unable to provide, protect, strengthen, and encourage. Because that's how your kingdom works. We thank you today for your word, and we pray these things. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, and everybody says, amen. Amen. Blessings go with you today.